Welcome to the Heart Hearth Earth podcast, where we gather around the metaphorical hearth to share ideas and conversations on matters of the heart, hearth and earth. Cross-pollinating as we span our wings, connecting the threads of ancestral wisdom. I believe ancestral wisdom provides a roadmap to a regenerative culture, contributing to thriving communities, healing and health. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians where I stand, the Biripai people, and all other First Nations people across this land. Hey everyone, I've got Lydia Irving here today from Internal Instinct, who's a nutritionist, and I'm going to hand over to her pretty quickly. Um, I've been trying to get Lydia on here from way back when it was Pollination Mamas, so this is the first episode of Heart. Earth, Earth. Let's see if I give myself a tongue twister with the own name I've given myself. Um, so that's pretty exciting because I feel like what Lydia um, shares and does in her work covers heart, earth and earth um, pretty well, but concentrating more on the nutrition aspect. So thanks for being here, Lydia. So good to finally have you after all these years of talking about it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Shelley. I think this is the perfect time for me to be on. I think maybe if we'd originally booked in a time to have a, a conversation on, a, on your podcast all those years ago when we initially thought about it, I might be having to uh, um, change some of the things I'd recommended back then. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I feel like, well, the idea is that I'm moving from being less niche about um, mother care even though that's a part of it so yeah yeah perfect yeah we would have had to do like um an edit or a take two or something yeah, yeah. <laughs> which we can do in the future anyway because things always do change which is such yeah. an important, important thing to remember as we evolve and mm. learn more mm. cool well let's jump straight in I'd love to hear what your philosophy is broadly on nutrition and mm. real food and maybe um, a little bit of your background and how um, you came to be where you are with the philosophy and knowledge that you have right now. Mm, awesome. Okay. Uh, well, I guess just to start with, my business internal instinct um, is something that I started with the idea of helping people reconnect to their bodies and using food as a tool to help them reconnect with their body. And I think what I just alluded to there with regards to um, when we thought we'd have a chat all those years ago and how I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm glad that didn't happen because I've definitely changed my approach now um, is that I've definitely evolved massively as a practitioner. So I am a nutritionist. I think I should clarify that. I am a nutritionist and I work with clients one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I work with very, very sick people um, and I am still in general practice, so I haven't really specialised in anything. But on this journey, I have learned a lot and being a practitioner is one of the most humbling things you can do. You think you know, you come out of uni and you think, yeah, I understand nutrition and healthy eating and everyone's got it wrong and I know how to fix everybody and and you come out with the absolute best intentions. And unfortunately, there's just so much noise out there. And unfortunately, a lot of that noise is highly qualified noise. So there are incredible doctors, nutritionists, practitioners, scientists that are writing books and writing textbooks and taking lectures that are unfortunately contributing to the noise of uh, disconnecting people even more from their bodies by putting people on incredibly restrictive diets or encouraging people to fear food or even fear their own bodies and their intentions and as were mine like my intentions when I first came out of uni and started to see clients was you know I just I really want to heal these people I really want to maybe a bit of a, <laughs> a savior complex or something there um yeah like I've just I just saw so much suffering um, within myself and within others in with regards to their relationships to food. And I just really wanted to put people on the right path. And I thought that the correct path was to take people off dairy, to take them off sugar, because 
you know, sugar's toxic and to encourage people to eat less, you know, this idea that the less you eat, the less of kind of like a toxic burden is on your system and, you know, the the way we all eat these days is toxic. There's all this toxicity and um, and to like take people you know, to, to test people's food intolerances and to be like, oh my gosh, you're intolerant to all these things. And that's what I did a lot as a practitioner. I took people off a lot of foods and initially people had incredible results. And, you know, my, like I, myself, I've, I've been on a restrictive diet. I had previously been on some kind of restrictive diet, whether put on it by a practitioner or put on it by myself after listening to something or reading something since I was really young, like since a really young age, I've been on some, you know, off dairy, off sugar, off wheat, off, off carbs, off salicylates, off, you know, it, it's a long list Off FODMAPs, the SIBO diet. Oh. <laughs> and, and I'm so grateful for the entire journey. And I'm definitely not, you know, trying to be hard on myself or be hard on others. And if, you know, anybody's listening to this being on, and they're on some kind of restrictive diet, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about your process but essentially you know and maybe I can go into a little bit more about my background and my upbringing if you want Shelley but I guess just to kind of give a brief brief history of my journey um, you know people would feel better initially after I had put them on some kind of restrictive diet and that that's great you know it's great to have a client come back after being put on this strict diet and they they are adhering to it like there's some incredible people out there that are able to do incredible things for the sake of their health and I'm in awe of the amount of willpower and discipline that a lot of people have um and and yeah they'd feel really good initially but one of my jobs so I'm in private practice which means people come and pay to see me privately which is great but then another one of my jobs is I get to work really closely with a, a GP um, in Wingham Jen Draper which is which is really awesome because you do see a lot more complex cases and the other thing is you do see people for a longer period of time so personally my experience with seeing naturopaths or, or people that you have to pay a lot of money to see you kind of see them initially and you're really enthusiastic but then when it doesn't work or you feel like you're failing because you can't stick to the plan, um, you then, well, my experience is then you just kind of don't go back. And so they don't ever get that kind of two-year follow-up. Whereas, you know, one of one of my jobs is that I do see people two years later. And it got to about two or th- two years into that, that position that I was in where I was seeing people, unfortunately, in almost a worse place than they were um, after the interventions because they'd now developed a lot of fear around food and there was a lot of restriction around food and all those kind of initial symptoms that had cleared up um, were either back worse or there were other symptoms um, back. So I it's now two and a half years or coming up to three years roughly. I'm, I'm really bad at timelines. <laughs> I should write down timelines. But essentially in uh, in my practice, I had to do um, a lot of soul searching and I I had to really dig deeper into what was actually going on within myself and within uh, and what was going on with my clients. And I was feeling really disillusioned, really, really disillusioned with nutrition, naturopathy. Um, I was just feeling like it just wasn't it wasn't helping in the way I was promised it would help at uni um and that's not saying that there aren't nutritionists and naturopaths out there that are really helping people this is just my experience and essentially it's almost like a a come to jesus moment for like (laughs) thing um where i i just had this a couple of things uh happened at once and i guess one of the big ones was um, I realized I personally wasn't actually coping. Like my stress levels were through the roof. And this was, of course, exacerbated by the big global shutdowns that were happening with regards to the end of 2019 and 2020. And we all know what happened in 2021. And 
I just realized at the beginning of all of that, that my nervous system was on its last limbs. (laughs) Mm. Um, And this was just this amazing moment where I realized I wasn't coping and simultaneously landed at some information landed in my hands about the benefits of dairy and that, um, and, and I come across a lot of information as you would as well, Shelley, like, you're like, like when you delve into the health sphere, there is just so much to delve through and there's constantly somebody recommending the new thing that's going to save your life. Um, and so I have a pretty good detector and a good way of sifting through what I feel based on science and experience works and doesn't work. And I'm not saying I know everything. I'm very humble in, in my practice now. But basically I stumbled upon some information that said yeah dairy is really really good for you and and it was I honestly just cried because I knew that it was true I knew that what I was reading like of course dairy is good for you and I you know I had the history of Western A Price um that was in part of you know that's been part of my nutrition journey is all that information by Western A Price and the amazing Sally Fallon and her book Nourishing Traditions and, you know, all of that foundation of that information was in there, but we get distracted along the way when, you know, people start saying dairy is inflammatory and, you know, there are a lot of people that don't tolerate dairy. So basically this, this dairy information put me on this rabbit hole, sent me in this, sent me down a rabbit hole um, that, that revealed to me that, Myself and most of my clients are severely undernourished despite adhering to, quote unquote, a healthy diet. And that if you're not consuming sufficient calories, then the body will adapt in a way that presents as stress and disease. And that felt like the elephant in the room that was being ignored, especially in my modality, which was very much just focused on micronutrients predominantly you know trying to get all your antioxidants and micronutrients in but never really taking into consideration the big picture of like are you just consuming sufficient energy so now my approach uh that i've implemented and i experiment with everything on my body and um, i love that about you actually (laughs) like you obviously have a unique um uh, access to clientele in that long term and then also mm-hmm. private practice but I love that you're always experimenting on yourself and you share that journey <laughs> on your social media so That's and you're nice. in detail like you're really feeling it and experimenting with it so yeah I love that yeah I think that's part of um that's the way I feel most comfortable sharing information because we don't really have much solid science in nutrition. Um, I mean, there's, you know, there is a lot of a science, but it's not very solid and there is no such thing as the perfect diet. And so I feel most comfortable sharing information through my experience. And let's be honest, like the reason why I became a nutritionist was because I was obsessed with food and health um, for myself. And so there is definitely a selfish pursuit to this. Um, but I guess my my approach now is no longer about, you know, how do I get, how do I mitigate as many symptoms as possible and how do you have like the most, the most, like the cleanest diet, I'm you know, like how clean can your diet be and how anti-inflammatory can your diet be? And instead of my main goal with internal instinct is to teach people how to make their body as resilient as possible and how to support their body through consuming sufficient calories and understanding what calories are and not just associating that word with weight management, but actually really understanding the healing power of consuming sufficient energy to then restore the way in which your body burns that energy so that then your digestion works well, you can sleep well, you know, your thyroid can work properly, your liver can process everything properly and you then become more resilient to your environment instead of the other way which was like cut everything out that's toxic um because i just think that's impossible and i think there's so much stress 
that we are all under and we have to be honest with that and try to make ourselves as resilient as possible instead of trying to be perfect or pure. Mm, yeah, it's a real flip around of mindset with um, that idea of what's clean food and also calories because calories for so many years, decades were something that you count because they mm. too many are too bad. Yeah. <laughs> too yeah. many, too bad. Yeah. And then and the other side of that, which I have been on, is like, oh, calories, I haven't got time for that. I'm not going to count calories. I'm just going to eat. Mm. But I guess the danger with that is that you can think you're getting enough and you're not. And that's where you really need to be filling your cup so that all of those processes can work well. Mm. Well, I guess this is where, yeah, that idea of counting calories, like hit the nail on the head. You know, when I – because I do personally track my meals and I'm not just tracking calories. Like I could not tell you how many calories in it are in an egg. Like I don't know. Mm. I'm tracking the calories per se. Um, I'm tracking the macronutrients and I'm also tracking micronutrients. But just to kind of like explain what I mean by calories and, and tracking calories. Um, and can you also explain macro and micro? nutrients just in case yeah uh, of course maybe i'll start there i'll start with the macros and the micros and then go to the calories um so macronutrients they're your large and in charge um nutrients so there's three that we consume enough in our diet so protein carbs and fat so some scientists a long time ago were able to measure uh, differences in these foods and basically carbs all break down into sugar or glucose. Um, Proteins break down into amino acids and fats break down into fatty acids. And these macronutrients respond differently in the body when we eat them. So, for example, when we eat carbs, regardless of whether it's fruit potato, honey, maple syrup, rice, blueberries, when we eat carbs, they break down into sugar. And so they will increase our blood sugar. And, you know, sugar in the blood is really important for making, well, not in the blood, but when the sugar gets into the cell, that is then glucose. And that's a really important source of energy. And then, of course, proteins. So, I would say my favorite proteins would be bioavailable proteins, which are animal products rather than just the plant products. But maybe that's a story for another time. Oh, no, I think, yeah, even a little one-on-one on on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, I'll quickly go into it now. But bioavailable basically means, um, and this is the issue with nutrition science is, Yes, a certain food will have a certain measurement of nutrients in it, whether macro or micro, but how well your body, A, digests, breaks down, so digests and um, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Assimilates, so how well that, so it's not just digesting it, but how well is that nutrient then assimilated into your body? Like how bioavailable is it for your cells? Can it be converted into a usable form? Yeah, like how usable is that nutrient? Mm. And so, yes, there is protein in plants. I'm not going to say there's no protein in plants. However, and especially people that have compromised digestive systems, accessing that protein and then making that protein bioavailable and actually being able to use it is really difficult when it just comes from plants. And so animal proteins are from my perspective and from my individual experience and based on science, I think they are essential, um, especially when looking at restoring metabolic function. And all I mean by restoring metabolic function is just having all the systems in your body, so cardiovascular, nervous, digestion, reproductive, having all those systems, skeletal, etc., having all those systems working optimally. Um, So proteins break down into amino acids. And when we eat proteins, um, they can actually lower our blood sugar. Uh, They do act on insulin. 
Um, but then proteins or amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins, are the building blocks of our body. So our body is predominantly made from protein, like our muscles and connective tissue and, and even joints and all that kind of, I mean, bones, the whole body uh, uses proteins in one way or another. And, and uh, that's like our building blocks. Um, and then, of course, fats break down into fatty acids and <laughs> something that drives me <laughs> Something that drives me crazy, and again, no offense to anybody, but when people always, when I say, hey, like, you know, talk about fats, and people are like, oh, but good fats. And I'm like, what do you mean about good fats and bad fats? Like, do you find that that is associated really strongly? Like, people always say, oh, but the good fats. Yeah, I, I probably even do it. I'm probably guilty <laughs> of it. <laughs> but my idea of good fats and bad fats might be different to someone else's. Yeah. But you're yeah. right. Maybe we, yeah, it's really mindset and flipping so that we're not creating good and bad foods. But that's exactly it. Mm. And, you know, if you're eating a predominantly whole food diet, then those fats are all good fats, technically. And ironically, you know, I'm a, a huge fan of saturated fat, and I'm sure you are a huge mm. saturated fat. But there also is a place for monounsaturated and polyunsaturated. But from my perspective, there isn't a place for industrialized seed oils or vegetable oils. Yeah. But I don't actually see them as food. Like, Yes, well, then there we go. And that's why it is good to define that because there's um, understandably still a lot of people believing that rice bran oil or sunflower oil is healthy mm. um and not understanding the process that it's undergone to be oil in a bottle mm. on the supermarket shelf and how chemical driven and what an industrial process that is so mm. i guess that's where it can be tricky with good fats bad fats and yeah for sure. um yeah <laughs> well I- education yeah and that's my little loophole there i'm like well it's not a food so it's not bad because it's not a food right <laughs> I kind of put it in the same category as petrol and diesel. <laughs> I mean, it is. And plastic. like Yeah, plastic. I, same machinery, I guess. Yeah. Um, so what most people, when I, like in clinic, when people say, oh, but good fats, they mean avocado and olive oil and salmon. Okay, um, right. But what you and I mean is like, yeah, that's all great. Cool. But also butter, you know, lard, tallow, milk they're really good fats as well yeah so not like people always say oh almonds and it's just like well they're fine but we as humans we make saturated fat that's why you know people have high cholesterol levels because we make saturated fat that's the fat that keeps us warm that's the fat that we make predominantly yes we can make unsaturated fats as well and that's why there is a bit of a place for unsaturated fats. Um, but I always think we'll just, let's just eat what we're made of because that makes the most sense. So they're your macronutrients. <laughs> um, and they're the, they're the big players. And we do know that if you are deficient in protein, protein is one of the hardest macronutrients for humans to eat. I don't think pretty much none i actually haven't had a client coming to me eating enough protein wow um and so that is the benefit of tracking Mm. is to have that freedom to eat breakfast and know that you're consuming sufficient protein not just so you can be a bodybuilder but for women in particular to help balance your blood sugar levels to then help balance your hormones Mm. Um, and to help build muscle because that's something that, you know, we just think of muscle on bodybuilders, but I have a lot of clients in their 60s, 70s, 80s who are just so frail and their muscles have totally deteriorated. And what I find as people age is they start to think, oh, I don't need to eat as much food because their appetite reduces. And so then the body will start to, and especially protein. Like I find I there's barely anyone over the age of 50, especially women that are consuming sufficient protein to support their muscles, um, but also to support blood sugar levels and connective tissue and 
metabolic like uh, system function like all of those things um so so yeah protein's really really hard to eat and and a lot of people are wasting their muscles because of course if you don't eat protein and if you don't eat carbs and you don't eat enough calories the body has this incredible survival mechanism of being able to find those calories elsewhere um mm. not in your fat cells it's in your muscle muscle yeah <laughs> what are your thoughts on the concept that actually our protein needs or our ability to convert um proteins goes up as we age I agree with that, but um, it depends on the other macronutrients in your diet. Right. Depends on how you've taught your body to be fueled. But I would just say as a blanket statement without getting too complicated because we're not the place to get too complicated just yet. Maybe that's another one. Mm. Um, I would say that just try to eat more protein regardless of um, your age and lifestyle, there's no harm in eating more protein. That's been studied extensively. A lot of, there's a lot of mythology around it being really hard on your kidneys or something. But again, protein is um, something that we are in like our modern Western diet, we are severely under consuming. Mm-hmm. So they're your macros, and I can go into those in a bit more detail, but your, micro, awesome. your micronutrients are vitamins and minerals So, and, and other things, but let's just say vitamins and minerals for now. So things like magnesium, which is a, a really, really important mineral, like we burn through that like crazy. We need a lot of magnesium, magnesium, copper, zinc, boron, um, potassium they're all your micros they're your minerals and then vitamins like vitamin c d e k f they're all there's loads of mm. vitamins and and that's where you know this concept of just um empty calories I, I guess an empty calorie is a food that contains energy it contains macronutrients like carbs but it does not contain, or fat, but does not contain any micronutrients. So micronutrients are essential. You know, I think most of us are severely undernourished on macronutrients like protein and, of course, micronutrients. I think that's a real imbalance. Is that where, I guess, the term nutrient-dense comes in because you'll have a food that will cover the macros but also be very dense? Um, have high amounts of those micros as well yeah that's that's a great example of what a nutrient dense meal is it's something that's per well here's where it gets a little complicated because I'll explain calories so oh yeah the science of calories is kind of dodgy when you look into it but it's it's pretty good and it's the best we have and it's essentially just a measurement of energy combustion um and and the rough rule is that one gram, a gram of carbs and a gram of protein um, contains four calories. That's not a perfect science. It's not that black and white. Um, it's a little, there's a little bit more detail to that. And one gram of fat contains nine calories. So almost double the amount of calories in fat. Oh, wow. So again, these are just numbers and the science isn't black and white, but it's a good measuring tool and it really helps guide us with, you know, how can I get the most out of my diet? Because we're going to eat every day. We can't live without food. So why not optimize it, but not restrict it, not limit, not obsess, but just optimize. So with that in mind, like the fact that fat has double the amount of calories and I'm a big fan of making sure you're eating enough calories But of course, if you're eating too many calories, you will gain weight. Um, And I have no issue with people carrying extra fat on their body. I don't think that that's a necessary indication of poor health. And I think we unfairly discriminate against people that have extra fat on their body. Um, However, I recently had extra fat on my body and it was quite (laughs) uncomfortable. (laughs) So, So if you're trying to say eat like, 2100 calories a day and that's just i've just pulled that number out of thin air i'm not saying you should try to eat 2100 
what I see when I ask clients to start tracking their diet and that in itself is an entire, like that's a whole lesson or three lessons just helping people track. Sometimes it takes me six months to get someone tracking and that's just because of all the emotional um, stuff around tracking, which is very understandable given the general education around what tracking means. But when I get people tracking, I see that they are predominantly eating fat as the main calorie. Um, so then most people are eating sufficient, if not excessive fat, um, mm. insufficient protein. And then depending on their relationship with carbs, it could be anywhere. It could be really low or really high. Um, and, and it's not that fat is bad. It's definitely not bad. I, I love fat. It's just in the context of supporting energy production because I feel like most people are tired, mm. <laughs> stressed and tired. And, and so whilst you're getting the calories from that fat, which is great, it's not the best macronutrient to rely on. Even though the ketogenic community promotes it, it's not the best macronutrient to rely on. And often that's the reason why we feel like we're eating a lot of, well, maybe some people feel like they're not eating much food, but they're gaining weight, but they're tired. And that's where understanding how the calories are spread out along macronutrients can help. Um, but that's why tracking can be helpful because you can then learn how to eat ice cream and not feel bad about eating ice cream and I don't think anyone should ever feel bad about eating ice cream <laughs> I think it's a, an essential food um, <laughs> but understanding how to use it in a way that makes you feel not just emotionally better but to feel more energized and then to feel confident that you're not going to gain weight and if you're okay to gain weight please gain weight I'm not going to stop you from doing that but if you've just bought like a really lovely pair of pants and you want to make sure you stay, you know, you just spent too much money on a pair of pants and you want to stay fitting them and you want to eat ice cream, then learning how to track um, is a really empowering tool from my perspective. So to, to kind of circle this back to your question about nutrient dense foods, I would say that the standard um, science out there, like the, the, the Australian food pyramid or the recommendations of what you should or shouldn't eat, I believe they highly glorify low calorie foods. So I, from my perspective, I see that foods like spinach and kale and seeds and um you know berries or acai or whatever it is I feel like these foods are given this accolades of nutrition um being really nutrient dense you know really nutrient dense but that's in relation to how many calories they have in them. So um, let me, is that making sense? So if mm. it has less calories in it, it's like per calorie. So actually spinach isn't that nutrient dense. It just kind of has no calories in it. Mm. So it's like per calorie, there's a lot of nutrients. Whereas say like a piece of steak um, has a lot of calories in it. You know, it's got protein and fat and a tiny bit of carbs. Um, and you know, high in B12, like B vitamins and all your minerals like zinc and iron and magnesium and all of those things. Um, but not many people conventionally in the conventional nutrition world think of a high calorie food like milk or dairy as being nutrient dense, but I know that from your perspective and from my perspective, that's kind of common knowledge. And that's not saying there's no space for spinach in our lives. Um, it's just understanding the context of, of that information being shared. Mm, and not putting spinach on the pedestal when maybe yeah. it, it could share the plate with dairy and steak as well. Exactly. Like let the cows eat that and turn it into something amazing for us. Exactly. <laughs> Such a, um, an efficient system for us. Oh. Incredible. <laughs> Imagine being able to turn grass into all of those nutrients. Oh, it's magic. Just, it's like water into wine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. 
Hey, it's no surprise that when it comes to health, nutrient-dense foods are my priority. However, let's be honest, we don't always get the balance right. So when it comes to supplements, I like to use whole foods too. My kids and I have been using Saturay's liver and oyster capsules alongside the Greener Pastures cod liver oil for quite some time as a way to support our immune systems and ensure we keep our A, D, E and K vitamins up. You can check out my affiliate links in the show notes as a way to both support this podcast and yours and your family's health. I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, so you're talking about what defines health and Mm -hmm. people I'm sure are coming to you for lots of different reasons. Mm -hmm. What would be the main indicators of feeling um, like someone is in poor health Mm. Um, and then how would you determine when someone is feeling like they're in better health? Mm. What are we, what are the symptoms we're seeing? And then what are the signs we're looking for? I love that question. Thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I do have my, my main things that I check for the main symptoms that I check for, but uh, I guess the main thing is how, how do they present as being as far away from death as possible? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, I think most of us on this planet right now are surviving very well. Um, Survival is something that the human species is is great at doing, but I'd say thriving is a luxury in today's age and to have vitality is a luxury, an absolute luxury that most people are not even, like most people don't even realise how much they're in survival mode and in stress mode and how much their metabolism has slowed down to accommodate the amount of stress they're under and how undernourished they are. And they just think, oh, this is just how I am. Like I'm just the type of person that, and I'll, I'll talk about the specific symptoms um, that I look for. So, so, what I'm looking for and what I teach people to look for are signs of vitality. So signs of uh, increased metabolic rate. So most people will think, oh, like, you know, people look thin and they're fit and they digest food really quickly. (laughs) And that's not, that's not all your metabolism is. As I said before, your metabolism um, is how how well you're converting and utilizing energy and how well all the systems are working in your body. So, um, look, this is a bit crass, but there are three things that I find fun for people to look into, and that's whether they're hungry. So do you wake up with an appetite? Are you hungry before your next meal? Um, do you feel like that kind of that, that excitement to eat and do, is food easily digested and are you having daily bowel motions? So most of my clients don't wake up hungry. Most of them wake up feeling sick. Most of them never really get hungry throughout the day. Mm. Um, there's a lot of like absence of appetite and then they just kind of eat because the body has compulsions to eat and that's a survival mechanism. So waking up hungry, like I remember when I first started to wake up hungry like I never used to wake up hungry but I I started to wake up hungry and you just feel way more alive you just feel like excited for the day and it's like a hunger for life so um so these are the three h's and then I'll go into some more so hungry and then happy um and I don't mean happy positive always happy because that's just not achievable like that's unrealistic we need to have Um, cyclical moods and we need to have times of feeling down and anger and all of that but what I mean by happy is emotionally resilient so um, feeling like you can allow yourself to feel the depth of an emotion because you trust that you'll pull yourself out of it Um, the opposite of that is I guess just depression where you kind of numb yourself uh, from experiencing all sorts of things and then of course anxiety as well and so Happiness doesn't present, like, I don't want to give this false idea that, you know, happiness is just always, always happy, but it's more about being, like, stable with your moods and being able to trust your moods. 
Mm. I could never do previously. I was a very moody, emotional person. And you see that, like, we've got a term for it, hangry. Yeah. And your window of tolerance for anything is so low when you're hangry. Um, But then, yeah, there's uh, those other areas of contentment versus Mm. not content in our life. And and resilient, I love that word, resilient. Yeah, hangry, oh, my gosh. All I would say, <laughs> all the fights I would pick with my partner would be when I was hangry. Like, <laughs> just stupid fights as well. Anyway, um, so hungry, happy, and, of course, horny. Um, yes, this is a big one. Yeah, so a sex drive for men and women. I think we just assume that all men are always horny, and that's definitely not the case. That's not what I see in clinic. No, yeah. Um, and most women, you know, it's just, it's just like sadly considered normal um, for women to lose their sex drive, especially like after having kids or like as they age or whatever. And like I have a lot of young women in their, you know, early 20s that just have no sex drive at all. And obviously there's a huge emotional component to that and there's so many aspects to that. But um yeah, uh, a sex drive or having a libido is closely linked with how metabolically safe your body feels. And I always say, you know, if your body believes it's in survival mode, like it believes that, you know, it's in a famine, that you're running for your life, you know, literally going to the gym and running for your life, like exhaustive exercise all the time. Um, If your body believes that, you know, Uh, it's not a great time to procreate and make a baby because you're in survival mode, then it will shut down sex drive. Like that's just a really, really sensible thing to do. Like what a stupid thing to waste your energy on. Mm. Um, But then of course, you know, there's so much, there's a lot of nuance to all of these things because some people will think they have a sex drive, but it's also like a trauma response to stress. So we have to understand there's a lot of nuance to these three H's, but I just think they're fun and catchy and easy to remember. Yeah, and there's truth to it. It ties into, it makes me think of, um, we're talking about the vitality in a sex drive mm. is, um, and this is like a whole other tangent, so I don't know if I should go down this rabbit hole, but um, part of the history, and tell me if this is true or what I've heard um, mm-hmm. is part of the history of our nutrition standards were partly influenced by um, the Seventh Day Adventist movement mm-hmm. and the idea that certain foods, especially those nutrient dense animal products, were likely to evoke lust mm-hmm. uh, from a religious point of view. And so, therefore, we should limit those mm-hmm. um, to limit too much lust in our bodies and eat the other foods that don't so much and this somehow over (laughs) a series of Chinese whispers turned into science and our nutrition standards which makes sense when you take the religion religious component out of it Mm. um, that lust could equal a libido and a sex drive which is an indicator of health yeah is that um have you gone down that rabbit hole have you looked into sanitarium yeah, well, sanitarium. That's yeah. what said, Venice, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So that's where, like, our because re- there is a a big push for high. And look, there's a lot of nuance in everything you just said as well. And it, it's not that black and white. It's not that simple. But um, a high fiber diet can lower cholesterol. Um, and people think, brilliant. The lower the cholesterol the less likely of a, I'm going to get a heart attack and that's really healthy to have low cholesterol because the fibre clears the cholesterol from the gut, which lowers your cholesterol. Um, unfortunately, that's not the whole story and cholesterol is a really important, essential uh, ingredient to make hormones. So all our hormones Uh, testosterone progesterone so for females sex drive um, actually really comes from progesterone like when we're ovulating we produce progesterone and for men sex drive comes from testosterone and so these sex hormones require cholesterol and if you are eating a low cholesterol diet mm, that can influence your 
level of cholesterol one way or another, kind of. But what really influences is if you're eating a lot of fiber, a really, really high fiber diet, um, like cereal. Mm. Uh, sanitarium. Yeah. And for anyone listening that doesn't know sanitarium, it's a very um, common, well-known cereal brand mm. throughout the world. But, um, yeah, especially yeah. here in Australia. Yeah. So, I mean, what I've found with myself with eating you know, a lot of calories and eating a lot of animal products and eating a lot of carbs and eating a lot of nutrient dense foods and not letting myself get um, tired before I eat and not exhausting myself every day. Like eat, and I'll t- maybe I'll go into this, like how to eat throughout the day. But something I've found is I used to be so sensitive to my environment and really struggled to speak up for myself. And I felt like such a victim of my environment. And now I just feel like I'm transitioning into this really, um, and also I've started strength training. So there's like a a physical component as well, but I feel like I'm transitioning into this person that stands up for herself. And, you know, I speak my truth so much more and I feel much less um, impacted by my environment. And when I have emotions, I'm able to deeply explore those emotions and I'm able to deeply go into them, um, which I feel like makes me quite, you know, a uh, uh, threatening person. <laughs> <laughs> um, or, you know, I'm not, I'm not easily convinced anymore, whereas I think I used to be easily convinced. So um, that's just a little example of how powerful nourishing is from my perspective, at least. Yeah, and I don't some people might be threatened by that but I'm sure there's plenty more that are actually inspired by yeah. that uh, yeah and I think I mean threatening maybe in a good way like yeah I feel like I always say to my clients like there's nothing more powerful than a nourished woman like a woman that is fertile or has a sex drive is physically capable and you know eating lots of food and digesting well and balanced blood sugar levels and you know has a full head of hair and I don't know I just feel like that's just such a warrior. Mm, there's that resilience and vitality. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned the strength training because um, I feel like we're coming up to an hour, not quite. Um, so many great gems in there already and I feel like I could go into each area um, a lot more. But I would love to hear about how strength training came into your life um the benefits that you found from it and why it could help people in general how it plays a pretty important role in health I'm only I've known for a long time it's like a lot of things Mm. you get we do have instincts we have a feeling of like what could Mm. be helpful for us as individuals um and there is like a big movement of people incorporating strength training in their life so as I follow people into health on social media there's more and more of it Mm. and definitely being called to it so I've I'm just just at the beginning of working out how to incorporate this in my life um in a more regular routine and strategic way I guess especially Mm. now I'm 41 (laughs) so I really want to do it now Mm. so yeah I'd love to hear for you individually and then more broadly how it can help people yeah awesome um well first of all I'm not a PT. I'm not trained in exercise at all. So I'm just going to share my personal experience. And then of course, um, a little bit about what I do know. So, um, my whole life I've been very tired. So I've never actually stuck to exercising ever throughout my life. So even as a teenager, I remember fantasizing about being fit. Um, of course I was not of course, but I was very skinny, but I wasn't fit and I was very tired and my dad was very active. And I remember he's saying to me when I was young, like, make sure you walk twice a day, like keep up with activity. And he would cycle a lot and I'd try to exercise and I would burn out. And it was so exhausting, so exhausting. And I would try to push myself physically um, and then just be asleep for the next couple of days. So we we do call that exercise intolerance and it's very common. Um, And 
it's also exacerbated by the fact that we believe that in order to get fit and healthy and to look like you're fit and healthy, that you have to do exhaustive exercise like high-intensity cardio, like running or swimming or um, cycling and doing it really intensely. There's this narrative that that is the kind of exercise that you need to do. So um, as a teenager, I was under eating. I've mostly been under eating my entire life for physical appearance reasons. Like I thought that's what I had to do to stay skinny. And also because I thought that that would make me healthier. Um, Spoiler alert, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the strength training was something that I, my opinion of strength training was that you do it and you get really muscular and bulky. I thought that it was something that was potentially harmful, but I was just really scared of getting bulky. That was my fear as a, as a person that was skinny. I just didn't want to get bulky. Um, But I have worked really closely now with a lot of practitioners that, and coaches that are considered to be in what's called the pro metabolic sphere. So Pro-metabolic is basically, it's very individualized. So you might see some Instagram posts out there like drink orange juice and, you know, do all these things that are pro-metabolic. And a lot of that's based on this guy, Dr. Ray Pete, and his his information, which is awesome, but it has to be very individualized. And it's not a diet. There is no diet out there. Um, but I follow, I, sorry, I've worked very closely with um, a woman called the nutrition coach, um, No, her name's Emma, but she is the nutrition coach. And then also I've worked with this woman called Libby Westcombe, who is a a PT, I guess. She works with body composition doing pro-metabolic. And these women are awesome. And I've worked with a bunch of others, but these two are awesome. And uh, there is a big emphasis on restoring metabolic function. And the more muscle you have on your body, than the essentially the faster your metabolism and I've always had skeletal issues you know scoliosis and sore hip and sore knee and all sorts of things like that um so I got into strength training to actually prepare my body for pregnancy um I have hormone imbalances and I've always known that the more muscle I have on my body the better it will be for my hormones And I'm not planning on being pregnant anytime soon, but I just thought that was a really sensible way to prepare my body for pregnancy. Um, But I was too tired to exercise. So I instead increased my calories first and I did gain a lot of weight because I did everything wrong and that's absolutely fine. We're allowed to do everything wrong. Um, And then I started strength training to build muscle and to have a sustainable way of maintaining exercise, maintaining my muscle, managing my body composition, and then just supporting overall metabolic function uh, in a way that I could for the rest of my life. And I feel confident that I can strength train at the rate that I am for the rest of my life because it's not exhaustive exercise. I'm not going in and doing 40 reps of something. You know, it's low low reps but building that strength and really progressive progressively adding on more and more weights um and that's the thing like a lot of women are scared and actually a lot of men like the amount of times I hear in the gym men saying oh I don't want to get too big and bulky Mm. women say that all the time and I'm like good luck like yeah I've said it before and as I've learned more I'm realized it's so hard the people who get bulky oh. are either on steroids or they are working so hard and they are like- eating, <laughs> they are eating more calories than you could even dream of eating yeah like, it is their life it's, yeah it's a full-time job like your Arnold Schwarzeneggers and stuff that's yeah. full-time that's a full-time situation they, <laughs> not, you know like yes yeah, it's, it's their entire life and so um strength training in a way where you're learning how to build muscle and that's the goal you're going in there to build muscle not to necessarily do really exhaustive exercise that being said you know you do get your heart rate up you do sweat like it is it is um 
you know, there is cardiovascular work being done. But the reason why I strength train is because I see a lot of sick people. That is my job. I see 30, roughly 30 to 20 to 40 people a week and they're all really sick. (laughs) Mm. And I just think I don't want to suffer for the rest of my life. I don't want to be a victim of my environment for the rest of my life. And we know that the more muscle you have on your body, the more metabolically resilient you are to all sorts of diseases. Um, But then just day-to-day bodily functions, like walking around the world with this extra muscle on my body just makes life so much easier. It makes gravity a little bit lighter. It makes all my tasks easier to do because I'm not struggling to hold my own body weight up. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah that's powerful specific you wanted me to talk about with strength training no I think that's good um if someone was interested in exploring it because mm. you do get some body changes they're just not as dramatic as I think we've been led to believe you don't walk in go to the gym mm. for six months and come out looking like a bodybuilder no. um, <laughs> but there are some physical changes as well I've seen yeah. it in um, other friends and I've seen it in you as you've shared but that is hand in hand with um, lifestyle and what you're eating too isn't it yeah so um, nutrition like so the first so nutrition is a huge part of building muscle so Mm. for most people that I see at the gym like I go to the go to a gym that does strength classes and I see people there that have been going to the same classes of me classes as me and they haven't been progressing at all and they don't look any different um and that's because they haven't nailed their nutrition they don't know how to fuel a workout or how to recover from a workout with their nutrition I'm speculating I assume that's what's going on maybe there's something mm, and yeah. not lifting heavy like I lift heavy I deadlift 120 kilos I back squat 100 kilos I bench press 60 kilos I lift very heavy um, and I am a big person but I have just cultivated the energy through my calories and eating enough food so that I can lift heavy and I also you know I started going to the gym when I was 20 kilos heavier or no actually um, 15 kilos heavier than what I currently am now So I then also had that extra fat on my body that was another weight that I was having to lift as well. So Mm. you do, you do build muscle and you, you know, you will build muscle, but to be bulky is Mm. hard. Yeah. And if someone was interested in looking into it, what are a few things that you would suggest for them to get started? If they were looking for a coach or a gym, what are a few things to ask? Yeah. um, So that, just to differentiate between um, like HIIT work, high-intensity training or cardio when you're looking for more of the strength training? Yeah. Um, Well, look, if you can afford it, it's actually super affordable. Um, I really love Libby Westcombe's information and she has a membership um, and she shares a lot of information and you can – it's all online so there's nothing in person, but I absolutely love what she offers and she's an expert and she's no, there's no bullshit with her. Um, she's great. I also would highly recommend like if, if you're looking for people to look into online, there's also um, Kitty Blomfield who has new strength. She's yeah. She's crass and swears a lot. Yeah, um, I like her. Yeah, I do like her. <laughs> they also have programs, but Libby, Libby is awesome. Um, there's also this, uh, young English woman, she's probably my age on YouTube called Natasha Ocean. Um, she has programs and she, her YouTube channel, I don't agree with everything that she shares. I don't agree with all her advice, but she's very level headed and, um, she's strong, uh, really, really strong. And then I would if, if you're really unwell, like if this is somebody who's got hyperthyroidism, really, really overweight, um, has been yo-yo dieting, um, has no energy, you know, really, if you're really, really unwell, don't start with strength training. Don't right. just start there. I would start with looking at your diet, 
looking at your nutrition and just increasing the non-exercise activity thermogenesis or the non-exercise activity. Um, so just increase walking, <laughs> like mm. just start there and then bring like layer everything in because as much as I love exercise and I think everybody should strength train. I, I think if you're 40 kilos overweight, and you have enough energy, go and strength train now. Like don't wait to lose the weight to strength train. Like do it now. Mm. If you're over 60, you can strength train. I think everyone should do it. But get your nutrition sorted before you do it. Otherwise, it will be a source of stress. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know how to properly fuel a workout, then, you know, for me, I get really bad migraines. Um after exhaustive exercise and that was a big lesson for me that I had to really fix my nutrition so that I don't get a migraine after I exercise mm, good point awesome yeah well, and thank you oh yeah no go. sorry just really quickly if you no, are no. local and you live near foster fortify does strength classes that's pretty much like having a pt but you're in a class and it's amazing okay cool um People could look for something similar in their area too. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> that's great. So much good info. Thank you. Um, cool. Well, I'll, all of those people that you mentioned, I'll find the links to them and I'll pop them in the show notes. And importantly, mm. where can people find you to follow you? Because Lydia does have a lot of great um, social media info that she shares too. And well, you do um, – Tell us a little bit about if you do online consults in private practice. Yes, I do. Okay, well, I have Instagram, which is internal.instinct, um, and I share a lot on there. And as you said, it is very personal. Like I do share a lot of my journey, which I'm very, I'm a very open person. I feel very comfortable, confident sharing that. Um, it's also really helpful broadly too, though. Yeah, the, yeah, in the way that you share it. Yeah, yeah there is a lot of broad information. Yeah. yeah, because there's a. I mean, we're all we're all individual, but we're all very similar in one way or another. And I, I often use my experience to share what I hear a lot about in clinic. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, I do mostly Zoom consultations. I've moved my clinic to my um, home. I now have a home practice, which is awesome. Um, so I see clients in person for one-on-one -on -one consultations and on Zoom. And I also work uh, at Wing and Wellbeing as well. Um, and I've just released, I never thought I'd be interested in fat loss, um, but most people associate seeing a nutritionist with fat loss. So I'm really excited because I've now finally put together a three month, a six month and a 12 month package or program rather. Um, and it's, I've entitled it, I've titled it, entitled, <laughs> um, embodied fat loss. And it's about teaching people how to change their body composition, whatever that means for them. You know, some people want to build muscle, lose fat. Some people need to gain fat. I have loads of clients that need to gain, gain a bit of weight. Um, for fertility reasons and etc. So it's learning how to manage your body composition without sacrificing your health and learning how to drive your body, not just learning how to starve it or binge, but actually learning how to live in your body and to alter your body composition and using the tools that are out there without associating that kind of obsessive restrictive mindset. So that's really cool because it, it helps people be more accountable. It's much more like weekly. We ch we check in weekly, and it's awesome. That's I've never I never thought I'd be into fat loss, um, and it's just awesome. It's so good because you're also dealing with, you know, thyroid and digestion and mental health and sleep and all of that as well. So it's it's really really cool. So I've also released that, and that'll all be I'll have a new website coming soon as well so there's actually a lot of changes in my life at the moment <laughs> that's amazing I had no idea about the programs that's really exciting yeah. yeah and you know there's a place for fat loss like you said it's important to state you know just because someone holds a bit of extra weight doesn't necessarily indicate someone could be less healthy and be skinny oh, but 100%. like there's perks to losing weight and that can be an indicator of um, other health issues and then you get all of the other wonderful health benefits too. Yeah. I mean, it's cool. That's exciting. 
no one would need to lose fat but anyway (laughs) yeah thanks so much for having me on Shelley I've really appreciated this chat so thank you oh I've loved it so good to finally make it happen thanks for your time and um, it's been funny I'm sitting here oh so for anyone um, also who's wondering where we are in case you want to know if you can have an actual uh, one-on-one consult with Lydia. She, we're on the mid-north coast, um, the more southern end, so if you know where Tari or Foster is, sort of in that region. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, yeah, online. So I'm sitting here in my car looking over <laughs> the Manning River and it's been so funny because sitting near a table and I've had like one guy rock up who was very overweight with like his energy drink and no shame if you have your energy drinks but just made me think about how many of us I love coffee you know are running on these fuels um we're talking about so yeah (laughs) the irony's been like sitting in front of me while we're chatting (laughs) people weren't rocking up and like eating beef jerky or cracking some hard-boiled eggs (laughs) beef (laughs) that's right Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And um, such a great way to crack off with the new round of podcasts. And yeah, I'll pop all those links up. Thanks for your energy and time listening. I hope you gained something from this podcast. All the links from the show are in the show notes. Please share with friends and family if you think there may be something here for them. Till next time, many blessings.